everyone. My name is Dr. Trisha Prince. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Marjorie Mamsang. I'm Dr. Sheila Javeri. And we are the PMNR Lady Docs. We're a group of physical medicine and rehabilitation doctors who met residency and wanted to create an educational and lifestyle podcast to help with board review, other educational topics, current events, and interview some special guests, too, with our on-call series. Check us out on Instagram at PMR Lady Docs or email us at PMRLadyDocs at gmail.com. Today, we have a special guest joining us. It's Dr. Gilbert A. Smith. He is an osteopathic physician and an attending child and adolescent psychiatrist practicing in the Miami, Florida area. He graduated medical school from the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. He completed general psychiatry residency at Larkin Community Hospital in South Miami and fast-tracked to child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship at Larkin Community Hospital. He's currently working in Miami, Florida. He is focused on LGBTQIA affirming therapy, depression, anxiety, ADHD, and mood disorders. His email is gilbertasmithdo at gmail.com. Just some special hotlines that Dr. Smith wanted us to be aware of today and for all of our listeners. For the Trevor Project, that address is www.thetrevorproject.org. The National Suicide Hotline, phone number is 800-273-8255. And also a website for translifeline.org, phone number is 877-565-8860. Before we start, I just had something to throw in there. I heard that they were changing the National Suicide Hotline to 988 starting in 2022. So instead of dialing 911, we can dial 988 for a mental health emergency. Yeah, I think they're starting to do that. I don't don't think it's in effect yet, but I think it's great that they're going to be doing things like that. Yeah, I heard 2022. So, and then there's another one, definitely, and there's another one because called text talk and I'll add that too because I just remember it's a crisis text hotline because that's the era that we're kind of living in where people text more especially um, kids so it's 741741 and the Trevor Project if you're not familiar is a project that was started by a husband and wife who lost their child to suicide because they were afraid to come out so it's focused on LGBTQIA teenagers specifically, and there's all resources from online to even calling to reach out to kids in needs. With that being said, welcome Dr. Smith to our on-call series podcast. We are super happy that you are able to join us today. I am too. Let's get started with some questions. What made you want to be a doctor? Why psychiatry? And you know, why did you decide to focus even more with child and adolescent psychiatry? So, and thank you for asking, because sometimes I even wonder that, like, after a while, I think a lot of us are like, okay, how did I get in this field? I was always interested in science, and with my parents, kind of geared me to looking to medicine, and I would shadow a large amount of individuals, up until, like, even medical school. So, <laughs> I think Trisha and Shields will find this interesting, because they know me. I was actually focused on doing, like, surgery and then it was like family medicine and so I think it's very interesting to feel that I ended up into <laughs> and the reason I ended up in the field of even behavioral um, medicine or psychiatry is because I did a project during medical school because I was feeling overwhelmed and anxious and this will go into more of a talk because a large amount people weren't talking about when you're in need and seeking help behavior so I actually did a project on it as a medical student and it made me more interested in the mental health field so after that I did another rotation with more outpatient psychiatry and I loved it because it was a different aspect of it. So that's why I looked into general psychiatry and then child adolescent after doing a rotation. I realized how much of an advocate you can be for, you know, kids in need who aren't being heard. And I felt that as a young black kid who was closeted most of my life, you going to predominantly white institutions that you're very isolated and alone. A lot of people cannot, not cannot, but don't hear you or listen to you. And it's very frustrating when you're not feeling heard or seen. So that's more of the reason why I focus within child adolescent psychiatry. It's awesome. So the next question is more like pediatric care versus adults. Is there a main difference in first-line treatments when dealing with pediatric population versus with adults? For example, are you more likely or less likely to prescribe psychiatric medications in children versus adults? And this is something that when I did my first rotation child in psychiatry, there was a debate. When it comes to adults, they're coming into your clinic, you do the evaluation, and you're doing your diagnostic study, and it's through the psychiatric 
Diagnostic Statistic Manual 5, which is what we use for our psychiatric criteria and psychological criteria for diagnosing mental illnesses. And so if someone comes into your office and, you know, they meet the criteria for depression, you talk to them about the treatment, especially if you're a psychiatrist and you may not be focusing on psychotherapy and seeing them weekly, you're going to recommend an antidepressant to help them with their what's going on or an antidepressant to help them with their anxiety. And you go through that criteria and you explain your reason why and the risk and benefits as you would when you're going to any doctor. But when you're doing something in a pediatric population, it's always a different type of dynamic because you're working with families or legal guardians and talking to them. And they're very hesitant on starting uh, psychotropic medication because of risk of possible side effects. And you talk to them about it. You always go to your first line studies. And there are some that are FDA approved for certain patient populations for anxiety and depression. And you explain it to the family that way. And there's very certain segments of populations where they may have certain mood disorders where you have to be mood stabilizer and you talk to your family about how long they're going to be on it. So when doing trial ass and psychiatry, it's different because you're almost, or not almost, you pretty much are doing family work. And that's something when in the beginning, I didn't really see as much or something where contemplating that working almost with both parents and the patient to make sure the patient is going to have compliance with medication and they get the treatment that they need. And with any of the medications, I always recommend to make sure the patient has a therapist to see weekly because while they're going over and taking the medication and they're having less of the irritability or whatever symptoms they're having, they need to be able to process it with someone in a very therapeutic manner. So that's usually how I explain and talk about the treatment guidelines. There are some parents who do not want to do any medication just as there are adult patients who come in and want to do something naturalistic and holistic. And that's totally fine and up to them. And it's always based on what their decision, as long as they have the competency and capacity to make the decision. So, and that's usually how I explain it. And there's always certain populations where if there's autism and a patient may need a mood stabilizer and they're FDA approved that you talk about the side effect profile and try your best, you know, to make the family have an informed decision about how to treat successfully. Interesting. Yes. What are the most common illnesses seen in the inpatient setting versus in the outpatient setting? For you? I think definitely always going to be depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, especially with the inpatient population versus outpatient. Depending on where you're living at, you may see more of also ADHD, especially within the youth population, making sure they have enough criteria for it and they have been diagnosed successfully. And talking also about the medication management versus the other management for ADHD. So I think no matter what, it's always in the depression that you see most. You may see occasional also drug-induced psychosis and drug-induced mood disorders and that's very common especially with the rise of cannabinoids being so prevalent and being seen as so unharmful in a way and we can go back and forth of the dynamic but you do see a large amount of the substance abuse used to it and they always have side effects along with you know hallucinogens that are out there especially because of South Florida and the prevalence of certain synthetic material. So you mentioned more ADHD depending on where you live or where you're at. Can you explain that? I think it depends on the patient population in school and the availability because there's some parents who, from my experience living down here, will go to like other, we say, practitioners before they go to a psychiatrist to diagnose the ADHD because they want to make sure it's, you know, what the diagnosis is and not something else because they're very concerned about having a child on stimulant, which is totally reasonable, rational, makes sense. And making sure that you're working as a team even with that, if the patient needs more of the ABA or RBT type of therapy with their ADHD or having type of psychoeducational evaluation, make sure it's just ADHD and not journalism anxiety because they can overlap with symptoms, especially in a type. So I think when growing up, ADHD was seen as like, has such a stigma. And I think they're, and that's more what I meant, depending on where you live, depending on the stigma of how people understand or want to use psychopharmacologics for treatment. And I think that's still a major factor that effects treatment. That makes sense. So I have another follow-up question actually on the ADHD. Have you noticed the opposite? I know that you said that your patients, parents are hesitant to place them on stimulants. Have you noticed that there are some who are the exact opposite and very eager and kind of do doctor shopping in order to get what they want in the area that you're practicing? Oh yeah, I think that comes with any patient population from adults to even when you're working with families. Definitely there's that. You always are cautious because it's sometimes interesting because you'll have one patient come in and you're advocating because they definitely need it and you have 
when the other patient come in and it's like what you're saying, doctor shopping, you're like sitting there like, okay, this is interesting. And I think it just goes with the dynamic of working within also mental health care. You see in various personalities, but you always want to make sure like the reason or rationales to why I'm using a first line therapy and using like studies to back up your diagnosis to help you and explain it to the families too, because a lot of them was like, well, they can't focus, they can't do this, but what other additional techniques are you using with the medication? What study skills are being used? And there's a large movement with, if you go on the ADHD website, with and using ADHD coaches to help with executive functioning of patients who, who have it. That's interesting. I almost want to circle back on what you said about the cannabinoids. What are you seeing in the adolescent population with that? I think with the vaping, I think with the news, they kept talking about vaping, they kept talking about the nicotine. I think there's a good amount of the population that were using it in synthetic oils with the vaping, with those vaping machines. And, and I don't think it's been that type of talk about it. And the fact that it's being so seen as, it's not like how it was, the stigma with it previously. So being a practice being so prevalent, so regulated, I think it's almost the same as like everything's harmless in some way. But even the medications I prescribe, you always have to make sure it's being monitored by their guardian and making sure it's locked away and being administered by a parent. And it's the same thing when it comes to, you know, cannabinoids, making sure, you know, because it's, they can get it very easily. There are side effects that can be beneficial. There's side effects that can be negative and making sure you have a topic about it. And there's some that are used that may not be truly true cannabinoids and you're not sure where the person's getting it. And they may have some type of substance induced type of mood disorder or substance use disorder later. I think that needs to be talked about, but I think because it's such at a point where there's so much controversy and not enough studies to talk about that, that it becomes very contentious issue. Contentious, I meant to say. I was like, what's contentious? <laughs> okay. So seeing as how we are still in the middle of this pandemic and certain areas in the country are in a way getting back to their normal or whatever their new normal is, how is mental health looking with COVID, especially with the patient population you care for? Like, you know, what are you seeing? Are you seeing an uptick in anxiety, depression? Are you seeing in childhood? Are you seeing the more defiant type disorders? Are, are you seeing an uptick in that because of the social isolation and the uncertainty with COVID, especially with these kids figuring out how they're going to learn this year with school? What are you seeing with that? Yes, yes, and yes. All the above. <laughs> 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 and we haven't had a bunch of studies, but a lot of the major groups like the American Academy of Child and Psychiatry are working to get, you know, things published to show how to like help and reach out to, you know, families in need and the children in need who are like sitting there on a the screen and need help. And some are just, it's like a amount of boredom along with other things because you just, you can't go out. And it's very frustrating. I think it was a study or not study. It was an article a while back that talked about adolescent males are having a difficult time. And I was seeing that earlier on, especially my adolescent males who had ADHD. You know, you're like caging someone in in some way. Not the fact that it wasn't also affecting the female population, but this particular article talked about that. But you were seeing multiple things. Our unit was pretty much at capacity throughout the epidemic to a degree. And then there was like increase in other type of anxiety, depression, suicidation, ingestions. So yeah, there's been an uptick and we've been trying our best to try to figure out how best to reach out to our patients. I think everyone overall within the healthcare field are trying to figure out how best to rebrand themselves in, in a way of, okay, this is how I would usually do my practice, but this is how I have to reach out to my patient population now and how to do that in the best way possible and making sure they're staying healthy and you're staying in contact. And telehealth is amazing, but you know, a large amount of kids don't connect with it, especially a large amount of LGBTQI teens and making sure they have privacy, true privacy and, you know, legal guardians and listening is a huge issue. So there's been some complexities, there have been some benefits, but there have been some complications that we're trying to work our best and talk to other colleagues on how they're working in it so we can figure out how best to reach out to our patient population. But there are definitely a level of anxiety and depression that has occurred and worrisome trying to figure out, you know, can you imagine being a senior in high school and college during this time trying to figure out how you're doing these things? It's, uh, can you imagine being a freshman starting out it's very challenging you know and it's very isolating so yeah you definitely have a lot of those things and i think in many ways we haven't had the best answers for it but we're doing our best to try to figure out how to adjust to it the way we can and doing it day by day because there's nothing written set in stone as a standard we're all learning
With kids staying at home more, I know I have a lot of friends and family who are like, oh, I can't wait for my kids to go back in school. They're <laughs> right. crazy. But Daily topic. Have you actually seen... <laughs> yes. But jokes aside, have you actually seen a change or an uptake in child abuse with this? They, people have said that. And I, I need to look into that because... Actually, you're the third person that asked me that this week specifically. If there's been an increase in child abuse, there's definitely been an increase of like seeing more things of neglect and abuse. But if there's been an increase, I think when working in our field is sometimes like I'm wondering if it's an increase because sometimes we see it's so regulatory that we have to ha look at from the outside end. I think I'll reach out to like, you know, Department of Children and Families to see if there has been more calls because they're also been very overwhelmed in a system that's you know not as prevalent and has not as many resources but i haven't had overall heard that there are but i think in a way there probably has been in a sense where you are in the area where and i'll give this case example one of the major things that because i look at lgbtqi affirming adolescents many of them have been feeling more isolated especially if their families do not acknowledge their identity so in that aspect there's been an increase in more isolation and not understanding and in individuals who may have had you know difficult communication feeling more alone and you feel that also increasing so I feel like there probably is a level of abuse and neglect but whether if it's physical sexual or emotional I think needs to be looked into also and to see how best to reach out I'm not sure if that completely answers your question but it's something that I've been thinking about because I think in the field I am I have different evaluations or see things differently than someone who may commonly may not see right. it so when it comes to trauma and on an average day you do have patients who come in with you know history of trauma and PTSD due to like history of what has happened and may have not disclosed it so yeah that's something to look into because people have to keep saying that but exactly what are they saying like are people calling in more to reaching out and that could be what's going on where it's not necessarily an increase it's just more of increased phone calls because of they're in a situation that is typically in this so if it's an increase specifically within the particular abuse or increase in the fact because there's no other outlet or so psychosocial support to reach out to so it's more of that isolation factor that's increased increasing the amount of trauma to be it too. Did that answer your question? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> it makes sense. You're getting things from your perspective and you don't know like all the data, so it's hard to get it. But it is something that's, you know, understandable with everything that's going on. It's something that, you know, raises curiosity amongst people. Right. Because when we hear it from our, like, when the news saying, oh, it's increasing this, but with particular part is being increased. What's going on? Is there increase in certain sex trafficking behavior or human trafficking that's going mm. on? And that goes within the complexity of it. And that's when I hear things like that because I see other things. I'm like, okay, so what's going on specifically that's happening? And I think that has been increasing too. And trying to reach out to like certain at-risk groups has been more cumbersome and trying to figure out how best to, you know, help these teens who are in need has also something that's increasing and increasing predatory individuals, if you think about it. I'm going to cut Shu off real quick before she asks her next question, but I'm actually glad that you mentioned the human trafficking, sex trafficking, because we've all seen the news within like the last week and a half or so, I think it was, where they busted that huge ring that was all across multiple states. I think it's one more thing that people need to be aware of because, you know, in general, we don't really talk about human trafficking or sex Crazy. trafficking, you know, as a country, I guess I would say, or unless you're working in that area or you know someone, you know, it's not a widely discussed thing. So in a way, and with a lot of different things, I feel like the pandemic has just shined a light on quote unquote, the underbelly of things that still go on, even though we like to live our lives like everything's nice and rosy. But I think it's important because people do need to be made aware of these things and how to avoid it or figure out how to get help for these people that they think might be in a bad situation. So I'm actually really glad that you brought that up. Yeah, along with homelessness and maybe getting kicked out of the house and going to other places are at a huge risk and being in major cities where the kids usually will make flock to thinking they may have opportunities and then there's issues when it comes to having adequate shelters and the shelters have been affected by the COVID is another factor of even thinking about that. And when you're talking about neglect and abuse, you even think of the women's shelters, like how they've had to do the logistics of helping, you know, at-risk individuals who are abused. So I think when those 
officer talked about, you just need to also have that in mind because they're also struggling financially during this time as everyone else. I think there was an article about Covenant House or someone that works with Covenant House. I want to say in the last two weeks or so, they came out and said, you know, we've never been overwhelmed like this. You know, they're not very well funded to begin with, but for them to come out and say, hey, we really need help because we are seeing an influx. So we just have to figure out the best way to allocate resources to everyone that needs it. And it's going to be hard for a while, honestly. Yeah. And it's not always something that's easy because it's not something that's seen as needed. So I think that's where as, as a community to reach out and making sure a place is in the community that may need something because even a little bit thing helps, you know? Like, I mean, if you're going to buy a new bed because you have the means, maybe donating that bed to one of those shelters to help or something to that effect. That would be awesome. So with some of these psych issues, what should parents, families, friends of these children be aware of, watching for, just to make sure that they're able to intervene before things worsen? Change in appetite is major. I think mood swings and irritability when it comes to adolescence is always something where it's like tongue-in-cheek because everyone's, I think, I can't remember if it was this week or last week where someone goes, well, they're a teenager, so they have mood swings. So I'm always like, because of what I work in and I evaluate, I was like, okay, well, let's evaluate the level of the mood swings is increased intensity what's happening specifically with the mood swings what's the background that's going on are they no longer having interest in doing things was there a certain trigger or stressor when it comes to schooling was something going on in their academic achievement were they you know this amazing student and everything went down were they always struggling in the academics and they've never just been tested for even a learning disorder or a processing issue that's increasing their depression and anxiety and a lot of kids I don't think what we when we're growing up we don't realize it when we're angry we have outbursts. A lot of depressive symptoms because we're not, our brain's not fully developed will react in a way where it's physical may punch something because we are angry and depressed. And sometimes that's how it's manifested for adolescents especially. And that's something to keep in mind. So they're able to self-soothe and figure out what's going on so they can cope and process their feelings. Because I mean, it's a struggling time adolescence, And there's so many stressors. And when I was growing up, like my dad didn't have the means to go out and talk about his feelings because it wasn't something that was done and the same with my mom but I think as society has evolved we reached out that there are needs for children and adolescents to be able to reach out and vent and not to see it as a betrayal like oh they're gonna rat out your parents but it's more of them talking about their feelings and not feeling validated. I like that. And I think that in the past, I mean, now that the education system has kind of changed a little bit with the COVID, it's more important for parents and family and friends to be a little bit more aware of because things that the teachers were catching in the past, they're not necessarily doing so right now. Like, oh, you know, they're they're having trouble paying attention. They never ate their lunch at school. And those are things that I remember even with my own classmates in middle school and high school noticing and like being reported. So I think that it's really just important to know those signs and symptoms to keep an eye out for for everybody. No, definitely. Yeah, like the, it's like Siggy Caps, and you do Siggy Caps also for the adolescents, and Siggy Caps is like the sleeps or you to ask me suicidation, the concentration, which can overlap with the ADHD or anxiety or appetite, which is the A, and then the P, like how the movements, if they're moving more slowly, more mopey, and you get into the debate of like, oh, is someone just being emo? And it's funny because I was having a conversation last week where I was like, yeah, I understand what you meant because I still wanted to put this Smash Pumpkins Infinite Sadness poster in my office. So yeah, that defined me, but you know, it is something that happens because, you know, I was a kid who did have a lot of anxiety and I didn't really talk about it and running was a great outlet for it but sometimes you may need more to reach out and it's not like bad to do that seeking out behavior I think that was the growth that I learned when I was in medical school I wish I had more of when I was in high school and growing up but it's okay and learning that you know it's confidential and talking about your feelings and it's okay and the academics is the other issue like using talking to families about if they notice a change and a lot of times the kids if they're starting a vacation like I may have noticed it and the parents are like oh I've noticed a huge change. They're more open, they're talkative, they're going to the therapy, and they may not see it. Because sometimes we may not see it. But there's individuals we live with on a daily basis who are good collateral information back to what's occurring. And then the teachers will, you know, say like, oh, there's been a huge change in so-and-so's behavior, you know? Going further into this with everything going on with racism and inequality and so forth in this country right now, we're essentially a powder keg. Are you seeing a difference in the way people approach their mental health? Are you seeing more people that are open and willing to ask for help? Are they wanting to be like, yeah, you know, you know what, I think I need a therapist. What are you seeing in that regard? 
In regard to that, I think there's a certain degree of people reaching out still trying to understand, but there's still a stigma. But even for myself, when it was the month of June was was rough for anyone who was ever like this whole year has been. It's just been a struggle talking about, you know, the intersectionality of race and class and gender. But, you know, having the fact of seeing the video over and over again, and it became at a point where it's like, why do they keep showing us? It's like, it's so traumatic to keep continuously keep watching this this vicarious trauma and as a mental health provider trying to reach out and you know talk to others about their mental health and I make sure to always keep in touch with my mental health and talk to my psychoanalyst but it was a lot I had to reach out to other child and psychiatrists who were pretty black I'm like how are you able to focus stay focused what's going on in the media and then stay true and fo- help your patients because it's a lot you know mental health providers you know you're talking to your patients and use sometimes what's called what I mentioned before, the vicarious trauma of your patients and making sure you're able to seek your own health and you're able to deal with your kind transference and transference of things that may have occurred in your life. I'm an African-American male who has been, when I was in my 30s, and actually when I was in PCOM and I was in an area where I would run all the time. You know, ever since I was like in grade school and I was like a cross-country and track runner, I was running with my iPod <laughs> and I had, called, I oh, had an iPod. Um, hey, I still use my iPad. But I was basically, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I still love it too because I'm charging mine up and I'm like, I try to connect with the computer, but not to erase it. But I digress, but I was detained and I'm just like, what is going on? How is this person who is called a sissy, the F word, all these things and was always bullied, seen as a threat, you know? Like, how am I being seen as a threat right now? I still, I feel, still am bullied in many ways in my profession and others. And yet, I fit a description of someone and it was just like, it was a lot. And I've never experienced that detail of, you know, policing in my life at that point because I was raised by someone who's in law enforcement and was supposed to do what I was supposed to do. He had to talk, you know, my, of all this that we know. And it's still to this day very traumatic, you know. I didn't feel comfortable running outside during that time because, you know, people are just on edge. And I didn't want to, like, you know, get harassed and deal with my own PTSD and feelings. And I ended up just, like, waiting for a call time because I just didn't feel comfortable, you know, being in certain areas with my own anxiety. And it took a while. But as a health provider, making sure to take care myself so I can also reach out to my patients was very complicated and just being able to talk to her about race even with my patients who are experiencing something and making sure they're affirmed and validated no matter where their background's from you know so it has been very complicated and even mental health there wasn't a lot to talk about racism and mental health but they're, we're getting better because a lot of us weren't in the, in the mental health profession <laughs> it's just the fact it is what it is so because more of us are there we're working on studies we're talking about our pain we're talking about how we were raised and how that, you know, has enabled us to be who we need to be and has reached out and strengthened with our patients. And it's become a major factor, you know, across the board because it's a stressor that causes mental health impacts and anxiety and depression, especially when you're the only one, you know, and it's a lot. And you're the only one in your family to first achieve this, you know, that pressure. And then if you're the only one in the room or <laughs> the only one in the department, you're trying to figure out, well, who can I talk to at work? Exactly. comfortable enough to approach with this topic that they won't feel offended or or feel like they immediately have to say, well, I'm not racist, but... And you know, you always end up in those conversations and you're just like, this is not what I wanted. And what's very interesting, I went to predominantly white all-male school when I was growing up. It felt like I've had so many of those conversations at that age where when people even begin those conversations, sometimes I don't always engage or engage differently. And I think that was, and sometimes I like was like, oh, why did I go to school? And I feel like it helped build that resilience in that. Cause it is a lot, you know, of like when to use your energy for that. And I even talk about that with my patients because you need to be able to when to use your energy. Cause it's dreaming. It's like, I said the other day, it's like, I can't be everyone's bag or pants, you know, you know? And I always felt like I was doing that, especially when I was in high school, I was like, I felt it was my my duty to do that. I felt it was my duty in college. And after the same time, it's like, no, it's my duty to be who I need to be, you know, and be better for myself. Because that's a lot of energy to take on. And you don't realize it, you know, until you're like, why am I so tired at the end of the day? It is. Well, Bill, you're so tired because you did this and this and this. And that was all going in your head, you know? 
it's exhausting. So yeah, and I think that leads to the anxiety and everything else of having to prove yourself and it's a lot. And it takes a lot to actually come to that realization of it and to own your truth. Yes, I'm glad you said that. You gotta own your truth at some point. Yeah. And now to be okay, <laughs> you know? So, you know, just like, woo woo woo, you know, Sinclair from, you know, Living Single. Woo woo woo, it's okay. Or like, what's funny, I, if you ever watch A Different World and it's funny because I'm in that world now where Whitley Gilbert's character goes to the therapy and Debbie Allen's the therapist and goes relax relate release and it's like <laughs> like I want to come up with like a saying like that because it's like it's basically what it is you know exactly just get you in your mindset to let everything go exactly so back to the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic is just really stressing me out. What can we... What can and we as a provider, I, I, and not to cut you off as a provider, <laughs> definitely don't, like anyone out there who listens to it, don't feel embarrassed to seek help because there's therapists that are specifically mm-hmm. focusing on that now. This week was Suicide Prevention Day for Physicians. Oh, right. My close friend who went to PCOM, who I call my gay dad because he raised me when I came out, he worked in the same hospital and was a colleague of the person who took her life and they had COVID at the same time and they came back after recovering from having COVID to be overwhelmed in a system where it's just like the ER was completely different. Like, so for all the providers out there, you can always, you know, find a way It's be confidential, pay out of pocket if you don't want to go through your insurance, but definitely seek help the best way you can, where you feel it's necessary to, because it is overwhelming. So, and I mean to cut you off, I definitely want to like no, advocate for that. And yeah. it's suicide prevention week. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> And I'm glad you said that because we see that those physicians and providers that do seek any type of mental health care, they are essentially, in a way, penalized by these insurance companies or disability companies that yeah. they try yes. to get coverage from because yeah. they then have to explain the entire history of their mental health care. And they are essentially being penalized for wanting to take care of themselves because they are now seen as some type of high risk or a liability. So in the end, they end up being charged higher rates for disability insurance or denied coverage altogether you know what is their recourse what kind of options do they have in that regard not with the current is i think advocating saying how discriminatory it is and disgusting it is because it completely is because we are not some like you know i am not your superwoman you know like the song says (laughs) yeah exactly yeah you know, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. And I went to do that. And I put that on there because I'm like, listen, no, I need this. This is part of my health. Like me seeing someone on a weekly basis. Because that's part of me making sure I stay who I am with all the stress that I have to deal with. And that's why some individuals, that's why I saying they pay out of pocket and don't report it to insurance because of that. And sometimes you have to do that. And you have to do you. And do you in a way where it's part of your self-care. You know, I mean, so many people like, oh, you can go to massage therapists, and but no one advocates of like someone to talk to on a confidential basis. And it's so important to have someone who's a trained person who helps you process what's going on. And let's say if it's not someone who's in a mental health field or like you, I have friends who have a life coach and I mean, that's an overlap, but however it is what you need, that's a part of your self-care, which it is. Find a way to do it to help yourself. And I guess it's easy for me to send them because I'm a single person without kids. And I know individuals who are married and have kids in this budget, but it's a part of your health. And I feel like we as providers need to start advocating that and start lobbying and telling our major groups that this is discriminatory and they should not be doing this. Because this is not the first time someone in the mental health. Yeah, and I mean, especially with. And that's where I, yeah. With what's going on now, I'm I'm only, I know we're outside of your main field of child an adolescent, but I think that in our own peers and colleagues, I'm noticing that people are anxious, people are depressed, people don't like the uncertainty that comes with what's going on currently. And it it puts you in a position where you're not really poised to deal with a lot of extra stuff and expectations from others, including patients yeah, sometimes. And, and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and expectations from insurance companies, doing prior authorizations, trying to get in touch oh with the pharmacy who patient goes, you never sent it, but you sent it electronically, trying to figure out why 
with this in electronically, trying to figure out why they're not approving this medication when it's the first line treatment therapy, but because it's not on their formulary. Things are not taught in training and this is what you're going through. Like you may not have your staff where it was anymore because of COVID. So you're doing more of this footwork and it's not easy to do. And being having to say is like, I can't take another patient because of what's happening because I'm not going to do the best that I need to do and being honest with that, but also realizing the factor of economics. That's a lot to deal with, you know? So that's why it's definitely important to find a way to reach out the best you can if you're able to not do it through your insurance and pay out of pocket, if you're able to financially. And sometimes you're not, or just trying to figure out how best to do your own self-care. And it's not easy. And we're not trained in training to do that. That's basically when I did that project. And it's been, it was years because we learned our seeking help behavior when we're in our training, you know? Like I'm a workaholic and I admit to it. And then I was like that because I was like, I, I had to be the best. I had to do this. Like, I, you know, I had to keep going. I keep going and keep going. And that's part of cultural too. Like you have to do it. You have to be there earlier or think you're going to be lazy. Well, you have to do this and think you're going to be lazy, you know? And it's a lot. And that's part of the distress. Yeah. I 100% agree with both of you guys. I think those are very good points, especially I like that you said <laughs> I am not superwoman. I think a lot of us as providers, like even if we don't see ourselves as superwoman, other people see us as superwoman. So then they don't realize that they're not okay, but it is, it is okay to not be okay. Absolutely. And to seek out help. Yeah. So that's and really it's interesting. It was like this TV show because I watched the Golden Girls on TV land. So they were showing this like commercial where it's like sit down and talk show. to someone. And I think Billy Alex was doing it. And it was just like, it's just something like that showing the care. And right now it's hard to do because it's all virtual and to having the touch and everything. And that's what was difficult with a lot of mental health individuals starting to do telehealth. But many of got used to it. But we would prefer to like our patients to go there, you know, come in, especially depending on what we're treating, you know, because that connection is so vital. Being of connection, as far as pandemic and isolation, what can we do to help lessen the struggle that everyone is having mentally right now with the pandemic? Because we are not built as humans for isolation. We are creatures of interaction and socialization. I certainly am. What are some coping mechanisms that you suggest? One is figuring out a way to do exercise. And I'm in the, I have the means to having like an exercise bike, but there's various ways virtually that people are like doing movement, you know, and they're moving around. And if you're quarantining with like a family to focusing even like a family thing, because I have a Peloton and it goes, oh, Peloton family friendly. I'm like, oh, it got there. <laughs> That's how deep it is. And you have to think about that because how are they doing PE in certain places and connecting and going out to lunch or things of that nature to have that connection. But I think doing movement is major, especially if you're able to, and it's not always feasible. You try the best you can. And to be kind to yourself that you can't do it every day. Like if you do it once a week to get back into the rhythm, be proud of that, you know? Like you can't be like how so many people on social media is like, I'm doing it all the time. I'm like, and that's great that you are able to do that. You know, but just be kinder to yourself during this because it's nothing's written in stone. Other coping skills to reach out the best you can to family and online if you're able to. And if it's not online, I'm trying to figure out some other ones I've like cope with. And I've even asked some other colleagues how they've had reached out to their patients because this is all a brave new world and we have no idea what's going to happen in a few months when hopefully things curb down and they want to reintroduce some things you know in spikes and if we go back or not it's a lot so i think it's a dynamic process but i think one of the major things is like trying to get that exercise down if you're able to and you know watching your diet watching how much alcohol you drink if you're drinking alcohol calming teas are great you know i'm binging girlfriends right now because i've never watched it all the way through and it's been really great watching an old show that you're used to is also they were saying like binging tv but binging something you know what's going to happen like friends it's shown to have less anxiety yeah <laughs> it has less anxiety because you already know what's going to be happening so and i even talked to my some of my patients about that too because sometimes i'll watch golden girls and end up falling asleep to it and it's like because i'm so used to it it's like calming and i feel like whatever thing is that's currently working for you to increase your anxiety and it's healthy and you're able to is a great coping skill and even 
even share that with a friend. I think that's another thing to remember because even though I'm in Israel, I don't have all the answers and we can rely on each other as a community. Yeah, I really like Those are all good tips. So I had briefly touched on this before, but in medicine and in our culture, seeking help from a psychiatrist is taboo. It comes with a stigma and, you know, people still feel that, you know, you have to be totally crazy to require seeing a psychiatrist or some some other types of feelings. How do you go about tackling that and dealing with that in your everyday practice? You hit the home because when you do like when you interact with some of your, even your colleagues, that's what they I think they think, you know, <laughs> it's like sometimes they're like, oh, well, this is totally psych. And I'm like, what about what's going on? And do you think it's totally psych? <laughs> and sometimes they don't even have an answer because they don't know. Because I feel like I know there's like a TV show from right now with from Ryan Murphy called Ratchet. I'm really apprehensive to watching it because I'm like, it's based on two flus over the cuckoo's nest, um, which is two flight over cuckoo's nest. I forget the name of it. I thought it, it was exactly one, flew, one flew it's over It's based the on a novel. Nest. One flew over cuckoo's nest. Yeah, based on the nurse <laughs> from that. I totally forgot it. But it's like. Cuckoo's nest. <laughs> yeah. Cuckoo's nest for sure. But I think it says a lot within our culture because that is the aspect of what they, people feel mental health is. And that's always been a struggle within our field, you know, of understanding that therapy, like every five minutes, it's not locking you up, you know, type of thing. I remember in Mellor's place, they did that to Heather Locklear's character one time. And it was like, ooh, it's dramatic, but it's like, it doesn't really act that way, you know? The reason why a patient would be a minute is more are you thinking about their safety and making sure they don't want to hurt themselves. If they're, or they're so depressed that they need like more intensive care. But I think we're still in a realm where we, we don't look at it that way. We think the person who's super possibly is iconic on the street or something is the only people who go into like a psychiatric unit unfortunately what about stigma from other medical providers it's always hard to deal with and you try to best yourself to explain about it but you know you deal then you're dealing with your own microaggressions from it and frustrating and dealing with the validation that they don't think your profession is real or does anything and yet you're getting called in the middle of the night because someone's super agitated and they need your help and it's just like you know if we're able to sit down and talk it would be great but I don't think we're there yet I'm not sure how we can get to be there and I think it just depends on the dynamic of whatever place you're at because some places are different in the way they approach it because they have a whole type of like system because people are able to sit down and talk with it you know and whether people validate or not that's what was in place but it really comes from like you know the culture overall what's happening and it goes into also protecting your energy because at the end of the day if i'm trying to make sure like you know a mom's calling me because they're worried about you know my patient who may decompensate it i'm not going to worry about trying to educate you about like the validity of my profession you know because that shows the validity of my profession whether you want to see it or not and it's like that's where you have to like learn I guess pick your battles but learn when to use your energy they ain't never gonna like you so it is what it is so <laughs> that's true I guess to go into that I mean because of the population that you further work with LGBTQI right when you talk about those topics and you want to engage in you know that community you always want to make sure you're not offending someone and not that you're trying to be so PC that you don't offend someone you just want to be able to talk about it with enough knowledge to make whoever you're with comfortable right so my question would be how do we as physicians make our patients that are part of that community how do we make them feel more comfortable when they're coming in for any number of medical issues not just mental health what's the best way for them to feel comfortable with us when we start asking certain questions because I know a lot of people in general whether they are part of that community or not are uncomfortable answering certain questions have to do an exam on them or whatever the case is how do we go about addressing that because we know that we're not taught that in medical school unless you have a special interest in it and you can find someone that actually provides care for the LGBTQIA community you're not really learning how to be you know sensitive to their needs and wants and desires what's the best way for us to tackle that that's such a long I know it's a hard question I did a CME course on this this week no I did a CME talk on it this week I've seen the website because you can log into it because they recorded it via Zoom and I'm like, you can look at all my facial expressions and give me feedback. But that's what I talked about. Cause it's like when you have patients come in and this is something I had to develop because no one did teach about this. Like the reason why I'm able to do a sexual education evaluation or started getting comfortable doing one is because I started going to LGBT centers in Philly who would allow med students to volunteer. And one of the things you need to do is to be able to do the evaluation and risk factors. And that's how to become comfortable 
about because in the formalized medical curriculum, it was not always taught because of multitude of issues. And so I even started to have to develop even screening for gender because a lot of people were like, well, all of a sudden they started this gender. And I even questioned that myself because I'm like, well, did anyone ever ask? You know, <laughs> if you never ever ask, like, how do you know this is all of a sudden? And sometimes I'll even screen that if a patient's inpatient unit to make sure that's not causing it because I've got a lot of feedback from other organizations that that was happening with a lot of patients. That's why they kept coming in and the patient didn't understand, not until certain things happen. And, and I think that's also about our openness to understand. One of the things I also started doing is like asking a preferred name, asking preferred pronoun and having your staff being able to do that is like vital. Asking like, who are you physically attracted to? Who are you emotionally attracted to? It shows a level of one that you care that you're even bothering to ask. You know, and feeling that make having a patient feel comfortable. So we just live in a world where it's very dynamic and diverse, and we just need to figure out the best way possible whatever population we're working with to make sure they feel comfortable and then learn from the feedback. And those are some of the things I've learned along the way to have a patient feel comfortable. A lot of them will I would ask like when I was redecorating my office, I seriously asked some of my patients like, "What would make you feel comfortable?" Because my space is just not my space; it's space for my patients. You know. They're telling me all their feelings up in there and they need to feel comfortable. So I asked them because I was putting the sign that was the pink triangle, the upside pink triangle as a sign of it's a safe space. And this pink triangle was something that was used during Nazi Germany during concentration camps to show that you were part of, that you're gay or the other. And that's where, that's how you were tapped. And it was kind of retaken as a way of that we're owning this. But the generation I work with didn't really always see that. They were like, well, if you put a safe zone there, we will understand. And I was like, well, well, okay, that speaks to them, you know? And I think working with kids, you always have to figure out what new way to do it. I think sometimes when we're working with adults, we feel like we shouldn't ask those questions. The kids are just so different in the way they present and changing and it always makes you feel young and different. But that can also go for adults too, you know, asking those questions. Because I feel like we always struggle as a profession. Everyone yeah. feels like they're woke enough to be able to approach certain topics, but until they actually sit down and talk to someone and realize, well, I don't really know much. So I'm glad you said that because it's the best way for us as a profession to really learn how to communicate effectively with our patients. I think it's something that medical schools across the country, they really need to make it a point to put this in their curriculum because a lot of biases that doctors go on to have in residency and so on and so forth, they already got them in medical school. So if you're not teaching them how to address their biases or even make them aware of their own biases, it's not going to help once they actually start practicing and making patients feel comfortable with them. So I think it's something that's important that we have to address. Oh, I was just going to say, like, make it part of, like, the talk that we get about what's proper bedside manner and, like, how to, like, make a patient feel comfortable so they can tell you stuff. Make it, like, a normal part of the curriculum. Because it's, like, a lot of dermatologists What's funny is like I know a lot of dermatologists of color and they always pop up things on their social media about this is how SLE will look for someone who is not the typical patient in the books who isn't a person of a background where they have a different melanin pigmentation. And this is how you have to look at it because it can be missed and it will be missed. And But you learn that it's a high percentage of African-American women who have it. But how many pictures did we see of African-American women who had the butterfly rash when we're like studying? And I think that shows like an impact when you're talking about it. Or how do you look at a certain rash on a different pigmentation? Like and being comfortable doing it and looking at the individuals who are teaching it to you. Yeah. Our, our textbooks are going to eventually reflect our... The people who are teaching so, to you don't look like you. What are you going to do? So we'll see how that works. Yeah, out. exactly. That starts contributing to actual textbooks and, you know, makes it a point to... And I feel like it, that speaks volumes. Yeah. Put the different pictures in there so we can... And that's just one example. ...when we get it on one of our exams, honestly. <laughs> Yeah. Like the normals on skin are totally different too. Ex exactly. I mean, like one of the doctor groups that we're in will frequently go ask, hey, picture posted with permission from whoever, or they'll put a picture of themselves or a kid or one of their kids. And they're asking, like, hey, this rash exactly. is what you guys think it is because textbook says this, but it doesn't really look like that. So what do I do? So I think it's, it's absolutely important. I mean, you can only do but so much CMEs, but if you're not learning it from the beginning. Well, or if it happens to us, you know, yeah. otherwise you're left like none of none of my lighter skin friends have this why why do I have this line on my nail or why do I have this going on and you're like but it's normal and you're like come on exactly
before we end, is there anything that you want to put out there for your patient population that you see or just in general that you think is like one absolute takeaway for people to know, right? That you're not alone. So I think that's a major thing because I feel a large amount of people feel like they're the only ones feeling a certain way. And being able to talk about it, I think, is the first line. And going out and just, it's okay to sit down and talk. Someone. If you're a spiritual person, you contact your pastor first. As long as you're seeking someone who is qualified to help you with the process of what you're going through, I think is a major takeaway because it's the first step. Especially for us right now who are in the medical profession who are getting hammered, you know. And September is Suicide Prevention Month, and I think that's something to be aware of, you know. With all the loan debt, and we're like doing this, and it's like crumbling and it's like you're seeing you're just more overwhelmed and it's just like dissatisfaction isn't maybe not being there where you want it or what you thought it would be so it's all i want to go over the resources one more time just so they're easy to access dr smith would you like to read them right so one is the trevor project which is an lgbtqia access and the telephone number also for that one is 1-866-488-7386 and another one is the suicide hotline 800-273-8255 and the trans lifeline which is the first one focused specifically for individuals who are transgender is 877-565-8860 and there's text talk 741741 so i just think there are like free resources out there and a lot of it is you can text to or chat with because they have to evolve with the how society evolved because most people don't call anymore so but there's resources out there they don't and it was we and that's where it came from because i was like oh this is neat how they do that and i'm like talking to most of my patients and most of them are like on social media and they have friends who are like halfway across the world who are their own age and it's like evolving with that but that's how people speak now and especially individuals who are gamers but i think that's why they had to evolve it that way that's awesome though at least they're you know at least it is evolving and it's making it a little bit more accessible for your population definitely we want to thank you so much for joining us today yes thank Thank you. you thank you these views are our own and not those of our employer Piman Our Lady Docs makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. While the information contained within the podcast is believed to be accurate at the time of the recording, no guarantee is given that the information provided in this podcast is correct, complete, and or up to date. The materials contained on this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute medical or other professional advice on any subject matter. All information, content, and material of this podcast is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. If you're having a medical emergency, stop this podcast and call 911. Let's press stop recording. All right, one, two, three.